So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is only in your light that we see and have light. It is in your spirit that we have understanding. And so we ask that you send your spirit as we read your word this morning and that you lead us into all truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I was visiting my parents in eastern North Carolina, and there is a river similar to the St. John's River. It's known as the Pamlico River, five to six miles wide in expanse. And my parents have a, a second cottage, second home there in which we often visit in the summer. And for many years, we owned several jet skis, and they were aging and becoming unreliable. My father was holding tightly to them, my mother was not. It was some source of debate. Because these jet skis had been some source of trouble in my growing up and even adulthood. 
But I took out my son to introduce him to some of that trouble. It was my middle son, Ware. And we crossed the Pamlico River on a windy afternoon. The river was beginning to swell and the swells were two to three feet, which is great fun if you're on a jet ski. And so we were rocketing across the river as we skipped from wave to wave. It became more and more violent where I began to grow progressively more uncomfortable and we hit one final wave as we were about a quarter mile from the northern shore. And then as we landed back on the water, the jet ski died. <laughs> and uh, if you know me well, you'll know that I'm not, um, I really do gravitate towards crisis. It's okay. I love problem solving when something presents itself in front of me, a challenge. And so immediately I go into game planning mode. But I turn and look at the South Shore where our home is, and I was six miles from home. And so I knew that that wasn't an option. <laughs> we couldn't swim this. And typically in the late afternoon in Eastern North Carolina, there's a thunderstorm in the summer, so I knew our time horizon was shrinking. And then I looked at where we were, and we were about a quarter mile away from the shore, but we were in one particular space of the river where there were not many homes. And so it was gonna be a good bit of a journey. And there was one dock about a half mile away. And then I knew that from that one dock, there was only one home, and then it was a three mile walk down the gravel road to the nearest town. I was hoping there were other options. I looked at where and I said, are you up for this? And he said, I'm just gonna stay here on the jet ski. <laughs> because there were not any options. There was nothing to do. There were no boats around. There was nobody to fire a flare gun at. There was nothing that could be done except to simply get off and walk. There was one way out of the predicament. And this is the similar situation in which Jesus has his disciples. Jesus has been journeying with them for several years and he's been defining and redefining who he is and the human predicament. And we know that the disciples and the crowds, they were very slow to get it. But here, as Jesus works a final miracle in which he raises a man from the dead and then he's triumphantly received back in Jerusalem, he is speaking very cryptically of being lifted up and everyone understood what that meant that that meant to be hoisted upon a cross. And why was the deliverer of Israel, who had been greeted with palms and great thanksgiving and rejoicing, why is he talking about being handed over to the Romans? And Jesus is informing everyone, especially his disciples, that there's only one option. There's only one way out of the dilemma, one solution to the problem. But as we journey through chapter 12, we see all of the complexities. Because you see, Jesus had created quite a commotion when he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's not an ordinary event, of course. And Lazarus had been dead four days. Obviously, he was well known. He lived two miles from Jerusalem. And the crowds were actually going out to see him. The chief priest wanted to put him back in the grave because it was such an inconvenient truth. People were beginning to believe in Jesus, we learn. There was a large banquet hosted for Jesus. 
News was spreading quickly. Jesus' fame was swelling. The Pharisees, as he comes back into the city, say, oh, the whole world is going after him. But of course, what we learn in all of the pomp and all of the circumstance, the palm branches lining the root, which was customary of receiving a royal dignitary, we still learn that with all that enthusiasm, there was still a very superficial and fickle faith. Please note what John says for us in chapter 12, in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now we've seen this repeatedly through the Gospel of John in which Jesus worked signs and people were impressed and even intrigued only later then to turn away. And it speaks something to our own fickleness, to our own superficiality. That we can be enthusiastic about Jesus, we can be impressed by him, we can be curious about him, we can be interested somewhat in him and yet not have genuine faith. And Jesus, in one final climatic series of events with one final sermon, encounters that raw reality that had been with him for several years. And so we learn in verse 20 that some Greeks traveled to attend the Jewish Passover festival. They were most likely not converted yet fully. They were God-fearers of some sort. And they approached Philip, who has a Greek name, and so it made sense, and they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a good request. It's an honest request. It's appropriate. After all, Jesus had done some impressive stuff they were hearing about. Who raises the dead? This man had. And perhaps also they had traveled all this way, so they wanted to gain a private audience with Jesus in which they could speak with him. And couldn't Philip, one of the disciples, work that out for them? It's interesting to note Jesus' response. They asked, sir, we wish to see Jesus. But he doesn't grant them that private audience. Rather, Jesus gives one final public sermon. It's his last sermon that he gives to crowds, that he delivers to people. And we find that from verses 23 through 36. But Jesus does answer the question about what it means to see him and to know him. He does answer the request of the Greek people coming to find out about him because he explains very clearly the stumbling block that exists for all humanity. When we request to see Jesus, what is it that we struggle with? What is it that we find so hard? Because in these verses, Jesus is saying there's one thing. There's one thing that we need to know in order to see him rightly. And that is that we need to know his cross. Yes, that Roman instrument of torture and humiliation and political dominion that was universally accepted in Jesus' world as a sign of humiliation. Jesus says there's no knowledge of God, there's no understanding of him apart from the cross. He has contended that he makes the Father known, that the only way to truly see Jesus is to embrace the cross that lies in front of him. There's no other way. 
And there's four things that Jesus goes on to lay out. Four things that he presses us to see about this cross in particular and why it is the only option available. First thing that he wants us to see, we must see the revelation of the cross. In verse 23, Jesus begins his sermon with this line, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Jesus has been speaking about his hour since chapter two, where he tells his mother Mary that his hour had not arrived, and so please don't bother him about working the miracle at Cana in Galilee. But Jesus' hour was something that progressed here, and now he is identifying that that hour has come, and in that hour, he was to be glorified. He goes on to use some other language if you follow into verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now it's interesting because John very carefully stitches together several Old Testament passages. There are two in particular. Isaiah 40 verse five, where Israel has promised in the great day where God comes again to the nation that he would reveal his glory to them and all flesh would see it together. That's the promise of Isaiah 40, verse five. And then in Isaiah 52, chapter 13, uh, verse 13, speaking of the servant who was to come and be part of that great deliverance, we're told that he would act wisely and that he would be lifted up and exalted and glorified. And Jesus here has brought all of these themes together. And there's one central message that's so important for us to appreciate about what he is saying. Because he's drawing us into the fact that in his cross, when he is lifted up, when he is crucified, that this event is revealing the glory of God. That the glory of God is just not waiting on the other side of the cross when Jesus is exalted and ascends, ascends to God's right hand. But in the crucifixion itself, there is an enthronement that is taking place in which God is revealing something about himself as to who he is. This is the revelation of God's glory as to who God is in his very nature. The cross speaks to us in this way. Jesus has said this previously in chapter eight. If you follow in verse 28, he said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. Once again, John and I, the words I am he quotes from the book of Isaiah. And he's saying, when you have lifted up the son of man, you will know that I am the true God and that I have not come on my own authority, but there is revelation, the revealing of the glory of God in the suffering of the servant. And so Jesus prays in all of the agony and pain of it, Glorify your name, Father. And what he is saying there is reveal your glory in me. 
And so the glory of God that is unfolded there on the hill of Golgotha is nothing less than the self-giving sacrifice of God for you. That is the glory of God. That is who God is in his deepest nature. It's he is self-giving. And that Jesus makes the true God known. Richard Baucom in his brilliant short book, God Crucified, one of the most profound books I've ever read about the crucifixion of Jesus, he says this, in this act of self-giving, God is most truly himself and defines himself for the world. And that is what's happening in the cross. And when we resist that, we don't simply resist the atoning work of Jesus. We also resist the very heart of God, who the creator and redeemer and reconciler of the world truly is. We resist him because this is how he has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. Now the second thing that's happening here that Jesus wants us to see about the cross is he also wants us to understand the logic of the cross. If you follow with me in verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus reaches to an agricultural metaphor in order to explain what's going on as he commonly did. But a grain of wheat, if it is to be productive, has to fall from its flower, descend to the ground, and die. And then of course we know that in the great mystery and miracle of nature, that that grain of wheat can then produce a great harvest on the other side of its death. Jesus knew that the disciples would see his death as a tragedy, as an end, as a termination. But Jesus is saying through this one option, through this one way out, there's actually going to be a great harvest. And that harvest is the reconciliation of the nations. All kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike, will be reconciled to God because there is a substitutionary offering. When Jesus speaks of the grain of wheat, he speaks of himself, that he's going to fall into the ground and die, and a great harvest will come. And this points us to the fundamental offense of Jesus' ministry. Because what he claims here is that there's no knowledge of God, there's no life with God apart from him falling into the ground and dying on our behalf. That Jesus has to endure the cross. Because as he endures the cross, he endures the judgment that you and I deserve. That Jesus has to remove that. He has to be the bearer of it. He comes and receives it that the judge is judged in our place. In order to do away with condemnation, he was condemned on our behalf. That's the logic of the cross. Fall into the ground and die, that there be great harvest. He takes our judgment to bring judgment to an end. The third thing that Jesus presses us to see, though, and understand it's also there is a vocation that comes with the cross. If you follow in verses 25 and 26, after speaking of his own death, he then turns his focus. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, summed up verses like this best. He said, what's important, crucial for Christians to understand is that Jesus Christ bears a cross for them. But not only does he do that, he also bestows a cross upon them. And this is the reality, that when we see that Jesus bears a cross for us, that the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies and raises a great harvest, that great harvest that is reconciled to God is then given a particular vocation or a particular calling that we are to serve him in the way that he has served us. That is that we take up the way of love and self-sacrifice. We take up the way of service. We take up the way of humility and putting others in front of ourselves. That that becomes the ethic of the Christian. The one who has had the cross and atonement made on their behalf gladly yields themselves to that Lord and master and lets him define the way of a true and meaningful and valuable life. And Jesus is placing this vocation upon the disciples through the example of his own suffering. That in no way is this example given so that we can somehow earn God's favor, but rather those who have been served by the sovereign savior, Jesus Christ, and those who have been saved by him and know his sufferings on their behalf gladly and joyfully then respond by walking in that way, identifying with him, even at the cost of shame. And that this is the way of true meaning. This is the way of true life. Whatever anyone else may say about it, Jesus is pointing us that the true meaning of human life, when it's at its deepest and most full, is when we're serving God in giving ourselves to others. In fact, we're identifying with the very nature of God, Jesus is arguing. So we must receive the vocation of his cross to see him. And the final piece of where Jesus points us here is also to see the victory of the cross. It's of course seen that Jesus' cross was a complete loss. There were many in his world who had claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was not the first. Many young Jewish men filled with zealous aspirations to throw off the yoke of Rome had gone to Jerusalem and declared themselves to be the leaders of the revolt. The Romans uniformly put them to death. They crucified them. It was humiliating. We could march through the details, but your imaginations don't need the help. It was a desecration of a human being, taking them and breaking them down, stripping them bare, and then having them die painfully in front of others. It was a sign for everyone else to know not to follow that way, that that road was closed. But Jesus understands that his cross is not the end. Follow once again into verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So interesting how Jesus is interpreting his cross. What the world would have seen as his judgment, he refers to as the judgment of the world's sin. And what the world would have seen as the victory of the ruler of the world, Jesus says is his casting out. What's happening here? How is Jesus reinterpreting this? Is he just delusional? It's important to understand the world of the Hebrew law court, the Jewish world, and how the court of law worked. Because there was a judge in that world, he was an elder who sat in the gate. And at dawn on each day, people would bring their trials against one another. And there were two parties. There was an accuser and an accused. The accuser would make their case against the accused. The judge would hear from the accused and then he would determine who was in the right. He would make a decision. He would either then weigh in for the accused or the accuser. It's a very simple system. The devil or Satan, his name simply means the accuser. And when humanity fell into sin, and we all have, in Adam we have participated in his shame and then we have added our own sins on top of that. Satan has an accusation against us and it holds true. There's no false information in the accusation. It holds true and he can put a claim upon us, and he can enter in before God, and he can accuse us of all the wrong we have done, and it holds. But you see, when Satan puts a claim on Jesus Christ, he was the righteous one. And Jesus gladly submitted himself to death. And he received the judgment of death. But there was an exception with him. You see, he was the true Adam who didn't fall into, the, into Satan's games. He didn't buy in. And so when Satan claims him and takes him down into death, Peter will say in his first sermon, death could not hold him. And why couldn't it hold him? It's because Jesus is the one righteous one. And so once again, evil as it always does, it oversteps and it goes too far. And Satan tried to claim the son of God for himself. And as he condemned the Son of God, he actually condemned himself. And this is the judgment of this world. The power of judgment is broken. And this was Jesus' great victory. The ruler of this world was cast out because his great power was condemned. It was taken away. It was nullified. And so all who look to faith in Jesus, that his victory is now our victory that we're not subjected to the ruler of this world. We're not under his dominion and power and we're not subject to his curse upon us or his accusations. And friends, this is the great hope for a quiet conscience. It's the great hope that extends beyond death. It's the great hope of the Christian world that the ruler of this world and all of his power has been cast out that we share in Jesus' victory. And it's only a victory achieved by Jesus going under the power of death and then destroying it in resurrection. 
these are the things that Jesus wants us to see. That there's one way out. One way out of the great dilemma, not of Rome. One way out of the great dilemma of human beings. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we've all participated that. And that there is no self-help program to help us build and restore and somehow please God. But there is one way, and that is for this self-giving, sacrificial God who at his very heart sends his son to crush the power of judgment and sin, to defeat it. And so that as we look in faith to him, our judgment has been put upon another. The grain of wheat has fallen into the ground and died, and he's produced a great harvest. He's lifted up from the earth, and he says he will draw all people to himself. Yes, people from every tribe, people from every tongue, people from every nation, because he comes to make atonement, to make it right. And so hear him. Hear him pleading with you even today, answering that question, sir, we wish to see Jesus. He is showing himself to you in his very words, the glory and the humiliation, the suffering pain of the cross, but yet the triumph and the victory. He's showing you who God is and what this God has done for you. Trust him, believe him. Let's pray. As we prepare for all the celebration of the events that lie ahead, we're aware of the great cost of the victory. And we give thanks that in your giving of yourself, you have brought our condemnation and our judgment to an end. Take us deeper into these profound mysteries and may we see the cross for all that it is. May we understand its logic May we receive its vocation. May we understand its victory and may we receive its revelation. Help us, God. Take us into all the truth of these things. Your work through your son for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.